Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimruttshow.com. That's jimruttshow.com. Today's guest is Mark Burgess, an independent researcher and writer. Hey, Jim. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's great to have you back on. Our first episode was so interesting. I figured, damn, let's find out what he knows about money, the other thing he's written about. Mark is a theoretical physicist by training. He's also a technologist, scientist in various domains, and an advisor to public and private organizations globally. He is also what I might call a practical philosopher with his development of promise theory. And yeah, he writes fiction and composes music. Today, we're going to examine another of his interests, money. Mark has written a very interesting book on the topic, Money, Ownership, and Agency is an Application of Promise Theory. As always, we'll have a link to it on Mark's episode page at jibrut.com. Check it out. The foundation of your work on money is your earlier work on promise theory. Could you very briefly outline promise theory for our audience? Sure. Promise theory is really a, a way of modeling stuff that happens and in a way that tries to build systems from the bottom up. So you you look at the smallest pieces of a system and then try to see how they compose to, to create the whole. And you do it by basically breaking everything down into a bunch of agents. Agents can be people, things, machines, mineral, animal, vegetable, whatever. And, and the promises they make to one another. And promises are statements of intent or, or alignment of intent. And by creating that network between agents of the intent and the direction in which they're moving, you hope to uh, model systems and their outcomes. So I guess that's a, a short version. That's great. It's a really very rich theory. And we talk about it in considerably more detail in EP28, where Mark was the guest on the Jim Rutt Show. So just type in Mark Burgess, EP28, Jim Rutt Show into Google, and you will find it. Let's now jump into money. Very big picture. In your mind, Mark, what is money for? I like that picture jumping into money. I could I could do that. Could do that all day. What is money for? I think money is for communicating intent in a sense, but it's deeper than that because money is not an expression of intent in, in the normal way that we think of money, at least in the in the modern version of money that we're used to using. It's uh, it's at a layer below that, which is a, more of a transport mechanism on top of which intentions ride. But it's um, a medium of exchange, you know, and whenever you have exchanges, you have people interacting over a length of time and building up a relationship with one another. And so money has this important role in our society of maintaining relationships, even when Perhaps we don't communicate by talking on the phone or visit one another for dinner so much anymore. As long as we're sending little packets of money back and forth, we still have a relationship going. So it becomes a proxy for maintaining relationships and therefore trust. 
Very good. The first thing I learned reading your book that caused me to raise my eyebrow and say, here's something I hadn't thought of quite like this before, is you describe money as a network transfer system. Very clever insight. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah. So having money as a go-between in exchanges has a lot of advantages, right? So, you know, some writers claim that barter preceded money in in some version of history. And others, I think, convincingly argue that, that was nev- there was never really a time in which money wasn't used in some sense. Um, and, and if we get, when we get into promise theory, we can explain that bartered goods are, are really a, a kind of private currency by, by looking at the patterns that are, that it represents like a, almost like a one-time pad. But, um, um, you know, barter was the way that we started to exchange things in the past when you had a certain kind of good that you wanted to sell me a bunch of wheat and I'd give you back a bunch of uh, wood or, or, or uh, honey or whatever it was. And we would make these exchanges with much more personal contact than, than uh, in the past. But then as time went by, trade you know, expanded, became more global. There was the, the Silk Road and the, the Islamic Empire spread its wings or its donkeys or camels across the, the world. And, and trade really took on a global dimension where you didn't really want to be carrying tons of wheat or, or camels or, or honey around the world to exchange things if you could get away with it. If you, if you took something in one direction, it would be nice just to have a monetary note to give in return, to say, okay, you owe me something in return. You don't have to give it to me right now, but uh, we will we'll make a note of that and we will settle up later on. And so that role, information in a virtual sense of information rather than a physical representation of information started to enter into the dialogue of that was that was trade. And that's really where the networking concept began. Having money as a you know go-between has a lot of advantages because it has no opinion, no affinity to a particular thing, uh, you know, wheat or honey or anything like that. And then it also allows us to maintain a clean separation between entities, if you like, a kind of locality of decision making, which sometimes is desirable, sometimes it isn't. But you know, it's desirable if you want to think of private property and incentives uh, within society for fun or profit. So, you know, money begins as this kind of virtual communicating device to settle trades, but then it takes on this new information dimension and trust building context and can even become a motivation in its own right to hold a lot of this stuff, gives you a lot of mobility because you can exchange one good for another. It's fungible doesn't even require me to get something back from you. You know, if we, if you give me something, I don't have to give you something back. I could give somebody else something and they could give you something. So there's this, it extends and expands the, the network dimensions, if you will, of, of exchanges and trades in a way that we now understand networks to do. 
Yep. And it also allowed much longer range trade, right? Particularly when money started to become denser, like gold or uh, even better in book entries like the northern Italian bankers in the 13th century. Trade networks could now be linked by these money signals from northern Italy to the Netherlands and back at the rate of horseback or sailing ship, but certainly much quicker than having to haul a vast wad of wheat from Genoa to Rotterdam. Yeah, exactly. And and uh, the, the one that I like is we still use the name Czech from uh, from the French root of the Persian word Shah for king, which was basically by the order of the king. Uh, we would have these money orders or promissory notes that could be sent back and forth rather than uh, a train of camels to uh, to carry gold or, or whatever. But this use of um, this gold is interesting as well because you begin with bulk amounts of things like wheat and and similar substances, which which are enormous volumes, heavy weights, and difficult to transport. But then you you have things like gold and silver, which are precious substances with a very small weight. You consider them to be worth very much more, and so you can keep a little, a few coins of gold in your pocket and buy a huge bunch of wheat, much easier to carry around. But still problematic because the the gold still has intrinsic value. So it's still a bit risky to carry it around. But then we go all the way to simple paper, checks and promissory notes, and the paper money and and the valueless coins that were later invented to avoid things like coin clipping, which allow you to totally separate the function of remembering debts, if you will, or remembering how to settle up an accounting brick as you would have in a game board from the actual valuable thing itself, which which is much more risky and difficult to carry around. Yep, that's absolutely true. You talked about medium of exchange as one of the features that money has. You know, historically it's described as having three features, medium of exchange, store value, and numeraire, a measure of value. Let's talk a little bit about store of value. One of the other interesting things that the emergence of money provides, I'd love to get your perspective on this, is to store value. And in fact, if we then lay that onto your concept of network, we might be able to think of uh, money something like a capacitor in the network. It allows us to store some amount of our energy, quote unquote, for some period of time, because it may be that I'm willing to you know, sell my wheat today, but I don't really want to buy some bread until Tuesday. And having money in between lets me easily and at lower risk essentially store that energy for some period of time. And of course, while it probably started out as short-term storage, over time, the amount of storage has tended to increase. So now we have not just capacitors, but probably batteries as well. Yeah, I like that picture of, uh, of a, a capacitor as a store. You know, there's a a sociology of money as well as uh, as a network. Any network has a kind of social function, of course. When the agents are independent things, each makes up its own decision, unlike an electric circuit in a capacitor where you have something driving the next part and it's all kind of quasi-deterministic. But when you have agents that are acting independently, more like a bunch of cells, then the dynamics of that network are a little bit different. So by holding money, you're you're trying to separate the notion of a fair exchange and measuring that fair exchange on some scale. What we now idolize is the concept of value, which is a kind of proxy for fairness, you know, where we fare in our transactions. 
um, you know, from the actual functional things that money does, the exchange details of it. And money, you know, is not supposed to have an intrinsic purpose. It's it's just a memory or accounting, like this game brick that, that I was talking about. But what's interesting is when you have this way of counting, you can then accumulate these counters, as you say, and it becomes a kind of a, a store, a trusted store. And that allows us to play a game with time in the way that capacitors and other stores of energy allow us to do in the, in the physical world. If we build up a store of something, we can then use it all in one go. So by saving up a, a pile of money, we can afford something that we wouldn't be able to afford given the rate of our normal earnings. Or if we come into some sudden wealth where we can we can spin that out, out over a longer period of time and survive for you know a longer period of time. So it has a buffering capacity as you as you describe, which is pretty important because there are many things in the world that we simply can't afford to do. We don't have enough resources to to climb over a wall. You know, you're in, you're stuck in prison. If you have a bunch of money, you might be able to bribe your way out. Or if you have a bunch of energy, you might be able to leap across the wall and overcome that potential energy with your rocket suit uh, and then es escape captivity. So this ability to play with resources, have to build up a reserve and then to use it in a, in a sudden amount or a sudden burst uh, allows us to play with space and time as a physicist that, that appeals to me. And of course, it comes back in subjects like quantum mechanics as well. But this ability to, to play with time allows us to achieve some things which would simply be impossible in the normal world of agents in their normal uh, time rates and spatial rates. So I think it, money has this important function which has enabled a new level of society to take place where we can build these amazing buildings and create cities and buy houses and do things that would simply be impossible by normal work. Sounds good. Next, you know, if we think of money itself being a buffer, there's another very interesting kind of elastic aspect to money that became accreted on, some people would say, from the beginning, if you believe David Graeber, and that's money and debt. Could you talk a little bit about both the nature of the relationship between money and debt and their asymmetry? Yeah, this is something which I thought was really nice in Promise Theory. You know, when I... I started this. I, I, I didn't know too much about money. I read pretty much everything I could find once I'd finally, the bug had finally bitten me. Um, and I read David Graeber's book, excellent book, uh, Debt, the First 5,000 Years for our, our avid readers. What Promise Theory kind of shows is that money and debt are not exact inverses of one another. There's another great book by Mirovsky, which is called More Heat Than Light. And he describes the history of economics, I suppose, money, money and economics in the 20th century, actually from the 18th century through the 20th century, and describes how economists had this kind of, they were very enamored by physics. They had physics envy, as many subjects do, because physicists had been so successful in describing the world by, in terms of laws and rules and could perform these marvelous calculations to, to predict the future. And everyone wanted that for, for money. And there was an obvious analogy between money and energy. Uh, energy is basically a, an accounting parameter in calculations about 
momentum and motion in the Newtonian formulation of, of physics. And so people saw this connection between mon money or this analogy, if you will, between money and energy, and they wanted that for economics. And they started to create these theories based around that. And one of the ideas that you have in energy is that energy is conserved. You know, once created, it's never destroyed. But if you create energies, as you sometimes can in quantum processes, you create an anti an anti version of that as well. You create matter and antimatter. And then if they are ever destroyed, they would turn back into energy so that the accounting is never broken or the, you know, you never lose track of anything as you're not supposed to in money either, uh, we should say. But so this is interesting because, of course, there's no reason why money should be conserved. If you've got a bunch of coins, you can lose some. You can melt them. You can eat them. You can you can just you can counterfeit your new money, print new bills, and so on. This is all allowed, but uh, it's very handy to have a system in which we pretend that money is also conserved, and we we shouldn't throw it away. We shouldn't print our own, and we should pay back our debts to try to eliminate them. And all of this becomes part of the narrative of money over time, and we we almost take it for granted. Uh, today, until we come to the point where we eliminated things like the gold standard of money, where we, we had physical physical measurements of money. And you, had, you then ask the question, where does money come from? And in the Marxist sense, uh, there's a, a narrative. We, you know, we still use this phrase, we need to make money. I mean, we imagine people working in a mine and, and digging up something and this turns magically into money. And of course it doesn't in a world in which money is simply a bunch of notes and exchange media that you have to get your hands on in order to pay for things. If you're just exchanging goods, yes, okay, you can exchange and barter with those goods that you've worked for. But in the world of virtualized money in which it becomes this kind of network layer, uh, you actually need to get hold of that networking material, that medium of money. And the only way we could do that now is through banks. Banks are the initiator of money, and money is created through debt. So you don't get given money for digging up coal or, or growing wheat. You have to go to the bank and say, I'd like to borrow some money, and they will give you money that you can spend in return for paying it back later. And all of the other stuff, the bartering and the trading and the exchanging you've got to do in your own time, the money takes on a story of its own. But this is kind of interesting because, so first of all, to, to get money, that means you need a bank account. And even today, there's a whole, there are whole swathes of population around the world which where people are unable to get into the banking system because... They're not credit worthy. They come from the wrong caste. They, they're the wrong color. They live in the wrong part of town and so on. Um, you're not part of the club with the secret handshake. You need a way into that system. So that's the first part. It becomes a social network and potentially a closed one. And then once you've managed to get money from the bank or whatever, you create this debt. That debt actually carries with it more information than the money that they give you in return. So in order to get that money, you may have to give up details, personal details, your credit history, how trustworthy were you in the past, and they keep this information, and that, of course, spreads through their private network. 
So even after you've paid back the money, which you think might annihilate the debt in the sense that particles and antiparticles may annihilate one another in physics, you may not completely annihilate your debt because the memory of all, all the semantics, the memory of that history follows you around. And so this, this ledger of uh, transactions that follows you around in the world as you go becomes a kind of a, almost like, a, you know, in physics, we talk about this virtual cloud that hangs around uh, bare particles. In, in, in monetary terms, we have this dark cloud of foreboding, which is our credit history, if you will, that follows us around as well. And that, of course, may influence transactions in the future. So debt and, and money superficially seem to be the opposite of one another. But in fact, debt uh, carries with it memories that are far more uh, complex and uh, networked than the money itself. Very, very good point. One of the key attributes of debt is interest. What is it and what's the rationale for it? Yeah, interest is one of those complex things that uh, I, <laughs> I always found it extremely hard to understand. And going back in history, it's even, we've been through you know, epochs in which interest was banned, forbidden. In the Islamic banking system, it's still forbidden in principle. Interest is this idea that when you borrow money, that's a service and you should perhaps pay for that service. So you have a service fee. You have to pay a certain amount uh, for the to compensate the lender, which is kind of absurd in a sense because you know it didn't cost banks anything to create the money, especially in the modern system, right? They're not you're not doing them out of anything by by borrowing the money. In fact, quite the contrary. But we've we've taken on this narrative of interest as a as a form of compensation for the money being unavailable to somebody else. So we should pay them for that service, for that so the privilege of, ha of handling the money. So that's one, one version of, of what interest is. Another one is that, you know, the interest rate that we hear about on the news is quite a confusing beast. It's only vaguely related to the, the rate of interest we pay on our mortgages, which may or may not be a service fee or whatever. But that makes economics pretty difficult for ordinary folks to understand and a highly illusory game even for bankers to understand. And what they're trying to do is to try to incorporate projections for what money might be worth in the future. If I hold on to a bunch of money instead of passing it on to somebody else, what happens if the buying power of that money, the purchasing power of that money is less because I'm holding on to it because prices are rising? Then by holding on to that money, uh, I may be losing or winning depending on whether the prices are going up or down. So I may, I may need to be compensated for that loss. So the fact that in any kind of world of processes, processes are always racing one another in time, you know, is, is one process becoming more expensive than another? Will we have to pay more for it? Is it going at a faster rate than the growth of the thing that we're hanging on to? Will I be able to catch the train, you know, if, if I run fast enough, do I have to borrow money in order to catch my train? This idea of racing processes is also present in money. So if we loan money to, to pay for a house, but the house price has increased before we pay for it, we've already you know, lost somehow. 
So there's this this concept in which interest is also part of playing with time and space and for transactions there as well. And we're trying to compensate perhaps people holding on to money or people who've lent money for what it could have been, what they could have done with it had they had the money themselves. And again, this goes back to this notion that money is imagined to be a conserved quantity in which, you know, if, if I have it, you can't have it and so on. It's not really true, but it's the game that we play in a, a strange kind of, by strange rules, we, we play it by rules that people make up as they go along, but but uh, that's sort of part of the rationale about how you try to, to motivate people to, to pay you back the money that you've lent them. Okay, very good. I will add, you basically laid out two rationales for interest. One is time value of money as a commodity, and the second is currency risk, as I extracted what you were saying. But there is, of course, a third one about real interest rates, which is default risk. So while that does not apply to so-called risk-free money, for instance, perhaps, and maybe not anymore, government bonds in the real world, (laughs) like when we purchase a car, as you talked about before, our credit history will modify quite significantly the interest rate we actually pay. I just want to make that point for the listener. Now, let me ask you one of these crazy questions that money nerds always ask each other and scratch their head. I'd love to hear your answer. One of the conundrums of bank interest money is that the money is created at the bank for the principal, but not for the interest. What does that mean? What implications does that have for the financial system? I'm not sure I understand the question, Jim. Okay, so let's say I'm a you know I I buy a house, I borrow from a hundred thousand from the bank, buy the house. That hundred thousand flows to the builder and off to his workers, etc. But I'm now on the hook to pay five percent annual interest. No money was created in the system to pay ah, that interest. Got it. Some people say that this is a crazed treadmill, which means that if the banking system isn't growing, it'll catastrophically collapse. Love to know your take on that seeming anomaly. Yes. So this is the uh, the paradox of money and the assumption that money is conserved. Uh, if you if you borrow 10, 10 bucks and you have to pay back more than that, then where does that money come from to pay back more than you actually borrowed if the money had to be created by debt in the first place? So how do you get more money back for what you borrowed than, than what you uh, initially borrowed to, to be able to pay back the interest? Let me hop in and say, say I'm, I'm a little interested in what it means to me as the borrower, but I'm more interested in the systematics, You know, the fact that the total sum of payments is now greater than the sum of money in the system. Yeah, I understand. And that's what I'm getting to that. So, okay. so, great, the, great. so you know, if, if everyone's borrowing money and they all have to pay it back, how can there be more money in the system to pay it back than there was created by the banks in the first place? Well, um, one, one answer to that also could be related to a phenomenon in physics called renormalization, where over time, the value of money, and I hate that, we'll come back to talk about that in a bit, perhaps, the value of money, what its purchasing power is changes because prices are rising. So because prices rise, we have to pump more money into the system to be able to pay for things. And and of course, as more people on the planet uh, are born, more money has to be created for them to buy things as well. So there is a need for more and more money all the time. And that means people have to be borrowing more and more money over time. 
So it seems to make no sense. It seems like we would be in permanent debt. And of course, we are in permanent debt all of the time. But the fact that prices are rising and uh, you can be paid back more leads to the concept of inflation, which allows you to get back more money than you perhaps paid for something and make profit. And that margin, assuming that it's always racing the creation of money and doing reasonably well, and you don't care too much about the debt, you can try to make that game work in such a way that you're paying back your debts as somebody else is borrowing kind of on your behalf somewhere else in the world. And the network effect of that is rooting money to you at just the right way that you're pushing debt away from you all of the time. But of course, new debt is being created all of the time at the edge, uh, which is never being paid back. And so there's this kind of pyramid game ongoing. And our, our economic story around profit and interest and so on is essentially a gigantic pyramid scheme in which debt is continuously being created, devalued, and the semantics of it being scattered around like entropy so that we don't care about it anymore um, in order to continue to play. And it's, I mean, it, it scares the heck out of me. I don't know about anyone else, but when I look at the way the, the financial system works, it, it's amazing to me every single day that it can possibly work. And yet it seems to have periods of stability and instability, of course, but, uh, but it, it seems to sometimes. Yeah, and it's sort of where I call it metastable, right? It's kind of yeah. like when you're running, a human running is actually falling, right? It's a controlled fall. <laughs> yes. And sometimes when you're running, your foot hits a curb or you step on a toy some kid left on the sidewalk, down you go on your face, right? I think of our financial system as that, as our money, a monetary and financial system as that, a controlled running fall, which mostly works, but sometimes you fall down and sometimes you fall down hard enough to break your noggin. Now, you talked about inflation and interest. We are now have been really since 2008 in a very strange world where from time to time deflation has raised its head and Japan basically has been in deflation or close to it for the last 20 years and deflation has flickered on and off in Europe and terrified the hell out of the central bankers. Also, more peculiarly, in your book, you talk about negative interest rate, but you note it as more of a historical curiosity. Today, it's a reality. For the last several years, there's been negative interest rates on short and even medium-term bonds from Switzerland, Germany, Japan, several other countries. I checked yesterday, and the Swiss rate, I think, on three-year bills is now minus 0.8%. In Germany, it's about 0.5%. I understand. I haven't done the research to confirm it, but I understand in Europe, some of the AAA rated corporate bonds are now mildly negative uh, on their interest rates. What does a world of deflation and negative interest rates indicate to us about money? And how does your theory of money even account for that? Yeah, this is a huge topic. And you're absolutely right. Um, negative interest rates are now pervasive in uh, Japan and Europe and the Eurozone in particular. I have to say I'm not an expert on it. First of all, I'm not an economist by any means. One of the interesting books that got me interested in the question of money in the beginning was, first of all, Yanis uh, Varoufakis's books. Uh, the first one was, uh, um, And the Weak Suffer What They Must, which was about the Greek debt crisis uh, in Europe. 
And then his later, his actually his earlier book, but I read that afterwards, called The Global Minotaur, which is about the financial crisis and the monetary system. And then after that, I, I stumbled across a, an interview with Steve Keen, Australian economist, who wrote this fabulous book called Debunking Economics. He's a, He belongs to the church of Minsky. I'm in Minsky and his death models. Minsky wrote a book called Stabilizing an Unstable Economy and Can It Happen Again around these, these various deflationary episodes and these financial crises that seem to recur every 10 years or, or so, uh, the mother of all being the one in 2007 and eight. And they, they have models for, for describing these, these scenarios, which go far beyond the kind of monetary modeling that I've undertaken using promise theory. They use these differential rate-based models, you know, based on average statistical measures and the econometrics that economists use, like interest rates and GDP and so on, which allow you to model money on the timescale of decades and, and years and over long, long periods of time. Of course, they then try to apply them to money markets on the scale of days and weeks and months, which is kind of absurd and leads to this meta-stability that you were just talking about. And this this is, I find this um, sort of extraordinary because this got me interested in the concept of money and whether or not that network of, of effects could work on the timescale of those microscopic interactions. So my promise theory of money is really a microscopic view of money, if you will. It's a transactional view at the level of, of our everyday payments for things, the trust incurred in the relationships between us, you know, what allows a one person to pay for something and what will make your client be willing to pay you for your services? How do those relationships get started in order to bootstrap that whole motor or machine engine of the world? I think that's what Ayn Rand called it, the engine of the world. Um, and that engine of the worldview is what the macroeconomists uh, like to study and to model and talk about. That macroscopic version of money is a totally different beast than the microscopic version that we were talking about in terms of transactions. And this was, this began to, I think people began to realize this after the, you know, the original uh, depression during the 30s, where Keynes became, you know, uh, John Maynard Keynes, the British economist, became a force of nature or force of economics, if you will, uh, talking about the role of debt and the fact that this, the way in which banks create money was an important thing that had to be taken into account. Because it may seem bizarre for, for our readers to, to hear that economists, economists economics, didn't model money. And, and to this day, many economists talk about economics, GDP and uh, debt and interest rates and unemployment without ever referring to, to money as a, as a medium and what it does. This is quite extraordinary. And Steve Keen makes a, a big point of this in his book, which I found very illuminating and inspired me to try to get to the bottom of what money was all about. What these guys do is they they look at these global indicators like GDP, unemployment, and they use kind of straight line or polynomial relationships between them, simple deterministic laws, a bit like the laws of physics that you know I was alluding to before, going back to this time when economists wanted 
economics to be like the laws of physics and have this physics envy, you just solve your your differential equation subject to some boundary conditions, and then you predict next year's economy. And people still do this with these um, Goodwin-Minsky models that are um, used in various degrees of approximation to try to look at the trends that are ongoing. But this, to me, from a promise theory perspective, this goes back to something which I call the principle of separation of scales, which uh, with your background in complexity science, you, you recognize as well as being one of the most important things of complex systems, how, how systems exist on different scales and they make different promises at each different scale. So there is an interaction story at each identifiable or separable scale of a system which tells a story of its own. And those stories are not necessarily clearly related or in a simple way related. And of course, this means that economics and the story of money and the story of society that it tells is not one simple story. It's a story on many levels. Economists separate themselves into microeconomists, macroeconomists. There should probably be mesoeconomists in there as well, but I never heard of them before. But I think um, economics is attempting to go through a revolution to reinvent itself along these lines. And some of those advocates, like Minsky was an early one, uh, largely forgotten today. Keynes, of course, wildly misrepresented in his his version of uh, events. His, his theory was kind of uh, hijacked by the neoclassical economists and misrepresented for many years. Um, and then sort of the modern advocates like Yanis Varoufakis and uh, Steve Keen, and even old guys like Schiller, the Nobel Prize winner, his latest books on narrative economics and so on, indicating how we, we try to separate the, the storylines of the different scales in the economy to, to predict how stuff happens. So, you know, a long and rambling answer to, you, to your question Really, economics being a complex system is is a complex thing to describe at many different scales, and we have to have different stories about it at each of these scales. The nature and characteristics of those stories at different scales, of course, very different. Absolutely. Very good perspective. And I will second the call out to Steve Keen's Economics Debunked, which is a must read if you want to understand why our economists have led us so far astray. I've got Schiller's Narrative Economics on my soon-to-be-read stack. And another one I'd call out, and this is actually my touchstone on my own work in monetary theory, The Money Illusion by Irving Fisher. Very iconoclastic economist back in the 20s and 30s, who I still believe saw money more accurately than anybody else. And finally, if you want to see the Ruddian view about money, I do have a talk on the internet. Type in Dividend Money Jim Rutt on YouTube, and you will see my 90-minute talk about an alternative money system that doesn't require debt. Let's move on. Another thing that you've talked about in your book in some considerable detail, something that's frankly right at the edge of my understanding of money and one of the things that makes it so damn complicated is how foreign exchange changes our analysis on money. Could you talk to us a little bit about foreign exchange and how that couples to any given country's monetary system? So we start with this idea that banks create money and each sovereign realm with its own banking system can create money 
of its own. In fact, you or I could tomorrow just create our own currency right off the bat if we wanted to. Anyone is free to do that at any time. Companies do it from time to time. We have coffee cards and flight miles and, and so on, these loyalty systems that people create. Um, and of course, there are many reasons for doing this, but uh, let's not get into that right now. The trick of creating your own money is to get people to accept it, right? So if, if, if someone will agree to use your currency and give it back to such a degree that it forms a network, then it starts to become a useful thing. So it's like if you're on the internet, if you have a bunch of internet packets, TCP packets, but no one else supports TCP, you're stuck. You're not going anywhere. But if the whole world adopts TCP IP, then suddenly you've got an internet. And in a similar way, you would like to have a global currency um, in which everybody could pay everyone else and you could make you could just sell things and buy things freely. But because of the relationship to politics, not everyone really wants to do that. Because who gets to decide how much money is in circulation will affect how well off people will be, which is a political issue. You know, who gets to borrow money? And if some people start getting too rich, how will we control that? So there's there's a lever of control which is implicit in money, which is highly political. And, and of course, governments and, and banks even and private corporations want to be able to control that to some extent. So sovereignty over money and its control is an important thing. And so after the Second World War, the Marshall Plan and all of the enormous war costs that reparations that had to be made, Keynes apparently proposed the idea of a global currency, but this was actually fought down by Washington because Washington wanted to have an advantage over the rest of the world to con- control certain resources like the oil and, and so on for political gains and, and still maintains that control lever, which allows it to um, perform sanctions on countries and so on. So this political dimension means that the the national boundaries of countries now play a role in currencies and exchanging money. If you want to pay for something in another country, you have to go through this rather complex dance by of buying currency using your own currency. Now, how does that work? If you if money is created only in the foreign country, and uh, you you can only get money from by paying in your own currency, and it doesn't work in the other country, how is that going to work? Well, of course, what happens is that each country basically has bank accounts in each other's banks. The, the foreign banks have bank accounts in one another's banks, and they will issue debt in order to issue currency in, in, the, in the foreign currency. So again, it's a game of virtual debt floating around with bonds and other instruments uh, we don't have to get into the details. If I even understood, you know, a fraction of it, but it's basically the the technology of debt and ledgers, creating debt and instantiating money in the currency required. But then, of course, there's another story around what is that money worth in terms of what you can buy for it. And the the basic rule, I think, which is easy to understand for everyone, is that money is worth exactly as much as you can get for it. You offer somebody a dollar, you may get bubble gum, you may get a car. It just depends how what people are feeling on the day. 
So there's a, a, a trust aspect to that. There's also a, a market-based aspect of that. If I can get something from somebody else cheaper, then you know, prices fluctuate. So there's a whole language of prices, which is a, a story unto itself. But that means that the effective purchasing power of money, what we like to call the value of money, is a highly relativistic, highly uh, fickle and um, mercurial aspect of global communication, which is constantly fluctuating. And it means that money we thought we had can just vanish overnight because markets are suddenly taking different rates of money for something. This happened to um, <laughs> friends of mine who borrowed money from one bank in one currency or, or ordered something online in one currency. And then the order was canceled and they were paid back or refunded the amount, but the amount was either less or more in the interim than what they paid for it originally. So you could either make a profit or a loss just by canceling an order, which is one of those extraordinary uh, uncertainties in, in the modern world. But this this is, again, all part of this promise theoretic story in which you have independent agents, in this case, the national sovereignties or the central banks, actually the private banks too, each maintaining their own version of money, their own rates of interest and their own rules essentially about how to repay debt. And the, the semantics of all of that impinge upon the effective amount of money that people have in their accounts over time. And of course, it manifests itself in some interesting ways. For the individual, small-scale foreign exchange can be horrendously expensive. You go to those goddamn money things at the airport, what do they hit you, 8 or 10%? And if you're a let's say, an economic migrant, a third world person working in the first world to get your remittance back to your family could be more than that. Yep. Part of the, the system that has not somehow evolved to be very efficient. One of the things that we've talked about a little bit is the supply of money. One of the things that I don't think was in your book too much, and unfortunately, you don't have a Kindle edition, so I couldn't search and see, is the velocity of money. Have you thought a little bit about how the quantity and supply of money interact? So this concept of the velocity of money is, is how quickly, in some sense, money is changing hands. And it's, uh, you know, unlike velocity in, in the Newtonian sense of physics, it's not a simple, simple concept. It can be discussed as a statistical concept on the scale of these macroeconomic models. But the meaning of that thing, I think, is a bit iffy. Uh, I don't. I wouldn't place too much uh, sway in that concept. Well, I don't know what macroeconomists would say about it. Personally, to me, it doesn't to make too much sense, for the simple reason that you or I operate with money on the on the scale of agents uh, and transactions, not these statistical averages over time. But what's important about this concept of how fast money moves is that. If money pools in places, you know, if you if somebody hoards money for too for too long, the supply of money is effectively stunted for other people. You need a certain amount of money flowing in order to be to be able to buy stuff. And if somebody's stashed, you know, ninety percent of the money in a, in their bank account, then it means that only ten percent of the money are available for the rest of the world to buy stuff, which may not be enough for what they need to do. So you then need to borrow more. Uh, so it's important that money maintains this sort of fluidity or liquidity, as they say in economics. 
it keeps moving. It doesn't stay still for too long. Now, this is kind of at odds with the idea that you want to accumulate buffers of money in order to perform these extraordinary acts of building or borrowing to to overcome obstacles and barriers along the way. This is a kind of the the discussion, if you like, the the difference between the Western debt-based economics that is uh, popular in America and Britain and the German version of monetary economics in which you're supposed to save up in advance, you, you know, you're good savers putting away for a rainy day and you never take on too much debt, you pay back your debts. This uh, has been studied at great length in David Graeber's book again, and not not only his book, but Thomas Piketty's book on capital, uh, which I liked very much. You know, he studies the history of debt and lending and borrowing and whether or not, you know, having huge debts instead of stockpiling money over time is in any way good or bad for you. And I think by studying the records, especially in Britain and France, who have kept records longer than many other countries, he he kind of concludes that debt is not all that bad as is not as bad as we think it is, and this kind of German model of you'd better save up your pennies in your piggy bank if you want to afford something rather than borrowing is actually false. Um, debt is more or less harmless over time because of inflation, and uh, if you don't lose your cool, um, it can be the better way perhaps of overcoming financial obstacles rather than trying to stop money from flowing. So, you know, whereas, you know, we Europeans look at uh, you Americans as big spenders going into debt, maxing out credit cards as being sort of, wow, this is sort of shocking to, to, to a European mentality. In the long run, it, perhaps it doesn't really matter and that might actually be the way to get ahead in, in the financial system such as it is. So this is a pretty interesting uh, issue, which I have a, a small understanding of, but I think it it's based around, you know, at, at the level I understand it, it's based around the individual agents and their willingness to accumulate money and pass it on, depending on their own private policies. And it's interesting, it's been a secular downward trend in velocity in the U.S. For instance, I just pulled up the Federal Reserve velocity of M2 money stock. In 1996, kind of in the hot economy, the velocity of money was about 2.2, meaning that the typical dollar was spent twice in a year. It's currently down around 1.4. And of course, what that is, is that money times velocity equals GDP. It's essentially a derived function. So GDP continues to grow. Money supply has grown tremendously with the various QEs, et cetera, during the financial crisis. We now have a much bigger money supply than we used to, and the GDP has been growing relatively slowly. And so algebraically, the velocity has to have come down, which basically means people are sitting on money more or money is stuck in places where it can't do anything. And this is something you hear from bankers that, well, we got money in our lending capacity, but there really isn't as much demand for lending as there used to be, at least creditworthy lending. And that's an interesting phenomena that we're in. Yeah. And Jim, this comes back to your point about the negative interest rates again. And the negative interest rate is, a, is an, an incentive for people to not hold on to money. If you've got money in the bank, you're actually being charged now for having it there rather than 
being offered a premium for for keeping it there. And so the negative interest rates are a way of trying to kick people up the ass and, and get them to spend their money a little bit and lend their money uh, in order to get the money moving around the system again. I think in terms of designing alternative money systems, there's a concept called demurrage, which is a charge for storing money. And of course, it goes way back to the days when gold was money and people would have gold notes that they'd get from their bankers. But at the same time, the bank would charge you a fee to hold your money. And one can imagine that in a, you know, a new cryptocurrency or other kind of cyber currency where you could actually have a negative interest rate built into the system. Even though money may not come from actual debt, you could actually have a charge to encourage people to move it. You could indeed adjust that demurrage to either speed up or slow down the money. I think however you organize your economy, whether it's uh, you know a cryptocurrency with a maximum amount of, of uh, Bitcoin or whatever, you know, an upper limit on that, whether you allow money to grow without without limit, as in Zimbabwe, or you know, with the extraordinary inflation rates, there's this multi-scale aspect to money which you're never going to escape one way or another, which is that the the long-term trends of spending, GDP, interest rates, and all the mechanisms, the levers which people use to encourage, to manipulate, to motivate us to interact with one another, those long-scale things act as a kind of a boundary condition informing the, the, the much faster transactions that apply to us in our daily lives. And so they, they affect the rate at which we are allowed to borrow money, the, the, in other words, the rate at which we can now acquire money to solve problems. And so there's this feedback system between the bankers and the world of financiers which, who are dealing with things like GDP, which is an utterly meaningless concept to, to most of us. The interest rates that we hear on the news, again, utterly meaningless concepts to most of us. And then the, the way they get turned into decisions made at your local bank for how much it's going to cost you to pay your mortgage this week and whether or not you can uh, afford to buy you know, food at the supermarket or whatever. So this this feedback system is a multi-scale feedback system, which makes it a complex system. And it's poorly understood. And as you say, metastable for that reason. Let's dig into a couple little more technical areas that you had some very interesting things to say about the entropy of network money and how we think about that and what does it mean? Entropy is one of those concepts I, I almost hate it when people bring it up because it's... Um, it's something people love to pull the wool over others' eyes with. John von Neumann even made that point, I think, to Claude Shannon back in the day of he was working on communications theory. If you call it entropy, no one will understand what you're talking about. But uh, entropy is um, it's essentially a measure of how distributed something is in a system. If everyone has exactly the same amount of something, you say the entropy of that thing is, is maximal. So if we all have the same amount of money, the entropy of money would be maximal. If, if we all had the same amount of wheat, the entropy of wheat would be maximal. The minimum amount of entropy is sort of the opposite of that, where one person has all of it and no one has, nobody else has any. And this is obviously important for trade and transactions because if we all have the same amount of something, then we've got no incentive to trade anything. So we definitely don't want to end up in a situation of maximum entropy. 
in money, economics, commodities, or whatever. Similarly, we don't want one person to have everything because then it would just be a charity show and you'd be getting handouts from somebody who is basically the ruler. So there's this concept much in physics about how entropy represents the motor of the system. If, if a system has reached maximum entropy, the, the system ain't going around no more. It, nothing's going to happen. So we're trying to avoid that from happening. And one of the antidotes to that happening is, is exactly the banking system where banks can create new money in order to create a surplus of uh, purchasing power. And then, of course, we need entrepreneurs and companies to create surpluses of goods here and there to prevent the heat death or the wheat death of the universe uh, on that's that kind of uh, score. So it's a little bit related to this concept of velocity of money. It's a very broad concept, uh, a theoretical concept, if you like, not too useful. Um, and we certainly hope that we never uh, get to the point where entropy becomes a useful measure. It would be a sort of, as you say, the heat death of the economic system. And it is interesting, that, you know, even though I do criticize the fractional reserve banking style of money, one of the things it does do is it forces the circulation, right? Because typically loans are for relatively short periods of time. I think the average is about four or five years. And so money comes into the banks, is destroyed literally. When you repay principal on a loan, the money is destroyed. And then the bank typically lends it back out, creating new money. And that money then diffuses back out into the system. So we essentially have a circular flow of money out to loans, back to the bank, and then back out again, which does provide a fairly strong force away from entropy. Right. And the, the part we didn't talk about earlier is that banks can't just create any amount of money anymore. There, there are limits uh, on deposits that they have to hold in order to create new money by regulation. This is simply a convention. It's not a, a law of nature, but it's um, a legal convention, I guess, in different countries. And they can adjust it for political or economic purposes. Yep. Let's go into some stuff that maybe gets a little closer to easily understood promise theory. And that's the idea of payments. There's lots of different ways that things can be paid. And interestingly, payments have attributes that aren't necessarily obvious on the surface. For instance, despite all these fancy bitcoins and this and that, credit cards still have a big role to play in the economy. Frankly, I always pay for anything I can with a high-end credit card like an American Express because it has a special attribute of renunciation, right? American Express, since I've been a customer for 50 years or something, 40 years, trusts me when I say, take the money back from that asshole, right? <laughs> the goods they gave was no damn good, and they'll just do it. American Express will just take the money back from the vendor. Talk about payments and how that whole thing works and how it's much more nuanced than it appears on the surface. Yeah, this, this is an incredibly interesting point, especially in this world of Bitcoins and cryptocurrencies that have taken off on the idea of mistrusting the banking system. The concept of money as a, a fungible network packet layer of communication is pretty important. And in order to carry out that function, it should have as few labels, as few semantics as possible. Just as in the internet, you want the IP layer or the TCP IP layer to be, to have very, relatively few markers and labels and, and things that identify it. You don't want money to be tied to a particular person because you want it to flow between people. You don't want it to be 
specific to a particular kind of good. You know, you can only use this money for wheat. Even though we create many of these loyalty systems now, like air miles and and coffee cards, that can only be redeemed with certain suppliers and so on. These are these are ways of playing games with with trust by adding labels to money to bring people back and to sort of maintain relationships by encouraging with incentives people to come back to and maintain the same relationships rather than allowing money to flow freely and diffuse without opinion, if you will. And part of this, uh, of course, happens with banks as well, although when you have a national currency like, uh, like the dollar or the pound or the euro, which works within a certain sovereign realm, the money kind of is tied to that central bank and then you have foreign exchanges as we discussed before. But if you ever begin to mistrust the role of that intermediary, the money itself or the third party that you go through like a bank that maintains a ledger for you to pay on, could be your credit card or your simply your, your checking account or, or whatever, then you may want to try to go back to this concept of barter, individual uh, handing over the goods directly again. But by doing so, you would lose a lot of, of, uh, of value. All of those things we discussed previously about the time, the ability to play with time, the ability to rescind your, your payment, as you mentioned, you know, I, I, I regret that decision, please take it back. All of those things become impossible in a world in which you don't have some kind of service layer in the middle. So these trusted third parties like the banks and the credit card companies, while at one point being able to have considerable power as network hubs, as exchange hubs within whatever currency they belong to, they also are able to provide smart services like lending, like rescinding money, like tracing certain transactions and you know they even can perform services for the police to to be able to track money laundering and and things like this although they don't do a terribly good job on that the argument that came up after the the 2008 crash that led to bitcoin and the cryptocurrencies was well these these banks because of their games with lending and, and refinancing of loans and monetary instrumentation has gone wild. They've lost control of themselves. They now wield too much power over ordinary people. Let's claim back trust by taking away that need to trust the middleman. Of course, that's entirely misplaced because you're still trusting a middleman. There is still a middleman in, in the cryptocurrencies. It's now uh, a software system instead of a banking entity. So it may be slightly more predictable in some senses, but not in others because it's still a market making it work. And it's still fluctuating based on the weather of who happens to be running Bitcoin mining operations at the time. So it's very, very complicated picture. But uh, this ability to put services in between is extremely analogous to this OSI model of networking layers from the bottommost layers of transport to the topmost layers of smart services that we expect from the web. But you've got to be careful about where you put different functions on the different layers of the network stack. So should we put, you know, should we have smart dollar bills? Would that be good? 
Could we add labels to the money? Well, no, you're not allowed to write on the bills. Uh, so we're not allowed to add money there. That's good. Okay, that mean, means money is still fungible. But then that prevents you from creating loyalty points and, and creating customer value through additional services that you could provide. So we want to be able to add those things at a higher level of abstraction. And this is a role of the banks and the money handlers that I think has been greatly underestimated in the West. In China, people are very good at doing this. They've come far further than us in, in the Western world by adding these smart services to money. Taking a promise theory perspective, as you mentioned at the beginning, okay, so in promise theory, you have agents and you have the promises. Promises are money are promises, and the proxies that carry those promises, the, the network packets, if you like, are the bills and the, the, the trusted third parties, the network hubs like the banks. But then what about the end agents, the agents at the end? If you put your intelligence into those guys, like it used to be in the world of bartering, you could say, well, I'm going to put all of my smart services into the endpoints instead, the pricing. How is the service offered? What What is included in the price? Is it just a number, how much you're willing to pay? Or are there, is, is it a form to fill out? You know, Do I have to give you additional information? Do I have to, will I add some extra stuff coming back to you as a service alongside this. And this is kind of interesting. We're starting to see banks realizing they've been caught with their pants down here because they are network hubs at the center of this vast network technology that is money. And they could be exploiting that hub advantage to provide additional services like authentication of users. You know, your identity is essentially your bank account ID, right? In uh, my home country, Scandinavia and Norway, the banks have taken on this role of validating or authenticating users for the government now. So we see banks as, as third-party network providers starting to realize they have other services they can offer than simply routing money. They can route other kinds of information too. They're in a great position to do that. But no one is quite sure how to go about this at the moment. And we see all kinds of inconsistent schemes, except in China where there's been far greater homogenization and willingness to interact and innovate around this space. So, you know, those guys in China have their social media platform, WeChat, and the um, Alibaba's uh, payment system. <clears throat> and they use those, they, they, they interact, and you, you can lend money. You can borrow money just through your phone app at the push of a button in a very simple way. And all of these financial services easily available. They're tied into other network services like facial recognition. So you go to the supermarket, you can just walk out, and it'll see your face, and you pay, pay with your face. So all of these possibilities can be embedded within the network architecture that is money. The question is, where do we want to put it? In the money packets, in the pricing, at the edge points, in the agents, or in the network transactions?
Mm, that's good. We're getting a little late on time, so I'm going to skip over some more details about our current money system that are from your book. I encourage the listeners to read the book if they're interested on those details. Let's talk about the wild new world of new monies. Though, actually, before we do that, it sounds like you know a fair amount about these Chinese payment systems, which I do not. Are those payment systems using banks as intermediaries, but just doing so efficiently and quickly? Or is there a near money or something else that's just outside the banking system there? Yeah, this is very interesting. Uh, it's a great question. In the beginning, uh, Alibaba and WeChat had monetary systems completely outside the banking world, right? So compare them to the airlines uh, and their, their systems of air miles that you can use to buy within the, the airline networks. You know, an airline has so many resources. It has such huge buffers of money and it's into every kind of commodity you can imagine. It needs transportation, oil, fuel. It could be its own. It is basically its own virtual sovereignty. And it's able to manage huge pools of money and debt simply within that framework without involving banks at all. And in a similar way, these massive companies, the extraordinary success of Alibaba and WeChat um, to enable them to create their own, essentially their own virtual money. And they could do this completely outside the normal banking system. But then the banks uh, caught wind of this and, and didn't like it. And, uh, and and thought back, and eventually the government had to prevent them from uh, sort of tie it all together in, in one consistent system. So keeping the banks in the loop in order to stabilize the economy without letting the banks uh, collapse, essentially. And also, they need to be able to do it for macro purposes and you know, control money supply and velocity, I suspect. So now these days, does Alibaba, WeChat have their own banks, essentially, so they can get the kind of speed and low cost they need? They are banks themselves, yeah, uh, I think, yeah. Let's step over to the next topic. I'm sure our listeners have been waiting for it, is your thoughts on cryptocurrencies. Let's start with Bitcoin and the claim that it is a trustless system. Yeah, uh, Promise Theory basically puts a hammer on the head to that idea. There's no such thing as a trustless system. You can only move trust around because money is a promise. It's a promise to redeem a value in the future. It's a time promise, you know. Uh, using this token, I will give you something in return at a later time. If that promise fails to be kept, you would lose trust in the money. So regardless of whether you're using Bitcoin, dollars, euros, whatever, you need to trust the money. Now, what do you mean by money? Is it a, a trusted third party like a bank ledger, a checking account, a visa account, PayPal, Alibaba, whatever it is? There is some intermediary, whether it's a peer-to-peer -peer network of uh, libertarians that want to uh, reclaim sovereignty of the monetary system by melting polar ice caps, or do we simply pay a company to do it for us on our behalf and trust them? The key fact that I think they got wrong in this essentially libertarian view of the economy, is that you can't get away with not having trust. Trust is the very glue of society. If you lose trust in your third parties, your institutions that makes the, the glue society together, if you lose trust in your network, you've lost society itself. You, you start to fragment off into you know, different trenches and you start firing at each other instead of cooperating. 
So trust is the glue of cooperation. You can't do without it. Now, all these cryptocurrencies do is they replace trust in the banks and a, and a centralized service with trust in a decentralized service and a bunch of software, which is presumably certified, which nobody verifies or validates, even if they have the ability in principle to do it because of open source. And that they, they serve no function that cannot equally be served by regulation. We don't have a way of running society without government in the modern world. Throughout history, there have only been two examples that I know of of, of governmentless societies. One, one was uh, you know centuries ago in the Niger Delta, northern Africa, and one was in middle China in antiquity. But in the modern world, we've always built societies around central seeds that, that allow us to root our trust through intermediaries. And it goes back to the ability to scale society. You know, society began with kinship, family relations, you know, anyone not in your tribe you fight against, you, you, it's either us or them. One of your previous speakers talked about hobbits and hooligans and Vulcans. You know, if you're not a, if you're not in my tribe, you're in another tribe, I'm going to hate you because you're in the other tribe. And that's an unstable situation on which to build trade and trust and society and larger scale cooperation. So if you want to scale cooperation, you want to move away from kinship, from tribal relations to these impartial organs, which are the foundations of modern society, the banks, the institutions of government, and so on. And this depersonalization of society is the thing that allowed us to scale it. So if we're going to retreat from that position by saying, I no longer want to trust those institutions, then we will retreat from the model of society we have today. This was, um, you mentioned at the beginning, one of the fiction books that I wrote many years ago, a book called Slogans. I, I sort of anticipated this back in 2002 or three or something, that our electronic devices, our handheld, what today are smartphones, didn't exist at the time I wrote the book, but these smartphones essentially allow us to have what we want at the push of a button without having to interact closely with, with bartering opponents. So we have no knowledge of them, no, no Dunbar relationship between them in which we know them at the level of our friends to be trustworthy. And that means these impersonal channels of communication, the ability to mail order, erode the fabric of trust on which society is built. You can see it as you walk down the street now. People are not People don't tip their hats to each other anymore. Maybe quite the opposite, you know? So this is potential risk, I believe, in society and the way that it works today, that we may lose our sense of society if we're not careful by introducing too many of these go-betweens that appear to eliminate the need to know your opponents and trust them. Very interesting perspective. You also did mention melting the polar ice caps. I have a good friend who describes Bitcoin as accelerating the heat death of the universe. You know, the same idea. Yep. And probably to no good point, as you describe. On the other hand, the other big thrust of innovation in cryptocurrencies, I find much more interesting, and that's the smart contracts that sit on top of Ethereum. In fact, when I was reading your first book on promise theory, 
Promises and applications, I think, wasn't it? <laughs> I can't remember. Uh, we'll figure it out. We'll put it on the website. Anyway, when I was reading that book, I said, damn, smart contracts would be a very interesting way to formally create some of these promises you were talking about. Do you have any thoughts on how things like smart contract systems map onto your promise theory? Yeah, I also got interested in this uh, this question and, until, I, again, I realized the, the, the cost of it all. I mean... First of all, smart contracts, great idea. So then you're putting some of the intelligence in the trusted third party. In, in this case, the trusted third party is a mobile uh, entity which or decentralized entity rather than a centralized one like a bank. There's no reason why you couldn't have smart contracts in a bank, a regular bank, right? So there's nothing specific about cryptocurrencies that makes them able to do, or blockchain, I should say, that enables it to perform these smart services that couldn't be done with centralized services equally well and much cheaper and much faster to mention something else. But this, yes, you're absolutely right. So smart contracts, absolutely powerful concept. How much uh, intelligence do you want to put into the machinery of the network itself? There's a story around this, which goes, if we go to internet technologies now, the, the, the corresponding thing in the world of Cisco and Huawei and uh, the network providers. These guys had an idea when the cloud came along of something called network function virtualization, in which all of those boxes, essentially the routers and the switches that we used to route packets, used to be just giant boxes of metal, which performed this function in hardware. They wanted to replace all that using virtual machines and to virtualize those functions uh, in a simple way, and they called that network function virtualization. And they had a very kind of poorly thought through idea of what that would be, just replace the routers with virtual machines. But they missed an opportunity to see an enormous, an enormous opportunity there in the ability to add smart functions, which we would now associate with things like data pipelining, smart transformations of data coming in one side going out the other. In a similar way, smart transactions coming in with a certain amount of information and then being turned into something else, enabling go-betweens like putting certain payments in escrow so that you can regret and reverse them as you could do with your American Express uh, card we talked about earlier. So all of those kind of smart functions, additional services, we're dying to put those into smart devices somewhere. The question is, do you put them into the money, into the third parties, or do you have them in the edge in your smart devices? And in a way, it depends a little bit on where the information is and where the data need to be in order to maintain privacy restrictions and other concerns of those of that kind of a nature. And also to be robust, right? Yeah. You don't want all the brains to be in your smartphone and all your data. I suppose you drop it in the toilet, you're screwed, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I constantly use this, uh, I forget the name of the episode, but that old episode of Star Trek where the whole of society ends up worshiping this giant computer because they've basically given their all of their trust to the machinery and they no longer have no, know how to do anything by themselves. This is what our smartphones will eventually do to us unless we, you know, take take steps to to avoid that that kind of um, demise 
Yep, that's true. Now, for our listeners who have the entrepreneurial mindset, Mark just handed you a multi-billion dollar opportunity. <laughs> it's one I have mentioned to people before. I still do a very small amount of early stage startup investing for a while. I was getting way too many blockchain, Bitcoin, cryptocurrency ideas. And I kept pushing back saying, why does this have to be on a blockchain? And seldom could anybody answer it. So, one of you entrepreneurs should build a smart contract infrastructure on top of a single ledger or mildly distributed high-speed ledger and push that out into the world. That would actually be useful. And when you get funding, come and talk to Jim and me and, uh, and we'll join you as advisors. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> if, if I wasn't so old and so rich, I might do it myself. But let's leave that to the next generation. <laughs> All right, Mark, we're getting near to the end point now. What are some thoughts that you might have for the future of money. If you know, we, we are where we are, what could we expect to see next? Yeah, this is a, something I, I wrote a little bit about in the, in the final chapter of the book, just speculating a little bit. One of the things that got me reading and, and engaged in this was the story of DevOps and this, this realization in the world of IT that developers and operations people within a, a software team communicate extremely poorly and tend to throw stuff over the wall to, to each other. So, you know, developers will write some software and they'll, they'll throw it over the wall to the, the operations people and say, run this for me. And then they get all the flack for it. You know, when it goes wrong, the users come back and hit the operators and say, you're not, you're not running this properly, you know, and they get all the blame while the developers sit in their ivory tower and uh, take the money. Uh, and this uh, this hasn't been going down well, and it hasn't been leading to much cooperation. So they realized that uh, these two, the dev and the ops people, needed to communicate better, form a Dunbar relationship to one another, and get some proper cooperative entanglement going between them. And this is a form of money. It's a form of trust building. And this occurred to me that this is a kind of currency that is required in the world of work. So in the future of work in which we are more distributed, more uh, nuanced in our functions and our roles, I think it's safe to say that we need to reinvent the concept of money entirely to be smarter and to, to deal with those ways of building and maintaining trust. Now, we've seen this with the microcurrencies, things like loyalty schemes, air miles for your favorite airline or one world alliance or, or whatever it is and we've seen it for uh, the, you know Starbucks and the different coffee houses and the and Amazon and so on this question of loyalty and trust is is surfacing its ugly head because we have neglected the role of trust in society and I think people are starting to realize just how important trust is ask any sales guy why they made their sales quota and they'll say it was because we have a relationship with the client it's not because my product is best or because i have superior technology it's because they trust you enough to give you money and that's the it's the foundation of business it's a foundation of society without that glue of trust our world will begin to unravel and so for me that is the future of money, figuring out how to rekindle trust. 
God, I love it. Well, I love that you mentioned DevOps. It's what happens to be one of my pet things also. I was fortunate enough to be invited to become chairman of the board of an early stage tech company in 2002 who actually built the whole agile DevOps philosophy into their business from the get-go. And man, was that a different world than it, the world that you described that I was used to in the 90s where the developers would throw some pile of shit over the wall, people would test it, it would break, and then the developers would grudgingly fix it and then you know, throw it over the wall two weeks later and then the ops people install it, it doesn't work. In DevOps, everything is built every day and it really amazingly has changed the way software development is done. And in some sense, it's a way that trust, as you described, Dunbar level trust has been able to be built between the development and the operational community. And for those of you looking for a career, young folks, DevOps is probably one of the hottest tickets out there in our economy today. To your bigger vision of somehow using money or money-like systems to build more trust in more ways, I applaud that tremendously. Trust is what holds our society together after all. If you have anything to say to wrap up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. How how do you top that? That was a great ending. So, Thanks, Mark, for an amazingly interesting deep dive into money. It's wonderful to have you on the show again. And maybe in the future, we'll have you back and talk about something else. Well, it's always great to, to come and chat to you. So I would love to do that anytime. Thanks, Jim. All right. This has been great. Thanks. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.